Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Whether she's catching waves on the seacoast or doing town halls across the state, Tulsi Gabbard has made herself right at home here in New Hampshire. With just a few weeks to go before the first in the nation vote, the congresswoman is hoping an old school approach will pay big dividends. In between the campaigning and surfing in the push-up contests, she's stopping by our studios for close-up. Congresswoman, thanks for being here. So you voted present on impeachment, and this caused a lot of your fellow Democrats to kind of lose their minds. Uh, <laughs> to put it lightly. Yeah, so describe. <laughs> Some argue that it's a cop-out, to not take a real position there. So explain the thinking behind voting present. No, I, I took a stand for the center recognizing how terribly divided our country has become and recognizing the need for us to be able to begin to heal those divides, to be able to move forward, to be able to make sure that it is the voters who decide to remove this president from the White House while also introducing a censure resolution that would be more likely to earn bipartisan support and that actually included many more of of the wrong decisions and abuses that this president uh, has done throughout his tenure in office. Uh, once again, I think we have to make these decisions not based on partisan interests, but really based on what is in the best interests of the country. I'm confident that I can defeat Donald Trump in November of this year. I think voters need to be the ones to make that decision. It's going to be a really interesting dynamic here because, as you know, out on the trail, one of the last things voters want to talk about is impeachment. There are yeah. all sorts of other issues, and yet it's going to become a dominant part of the conversation right as we head into the vote. Is this part of what you would argue is the mistake Democrats were making strategically here? Uh, it, it's To me, it just shows the uh, disconnect between what's happening in this bubble in Washington that is really paralyzed with hyper-partisanship and how different it is to what people are really thinking about and talking about and worried about every single day in their lives here in New Hampshire and across the country and and that's what's been very telling is throughout this entire process where impeachment has been the focus in Washington I've gotten very few very few questions related to impeachment in the town halls we're holding every single day here across your state this is going to be a very interesting time foreign policy wise as well the US and yes. Iran uh, those tensions are still there right underneath the surface is there any chance that this could turn into a win-win for the United States taking out someone as dangerous as Soleimani an enemy of the United States states and resulting in a reduced military footprint in the Middle East, something you've long called for. Uh, there, there are two problems with, with that premise. Number one is President Trump's actions were illegal and unconstitutional. If he wants to go to war with Iran, he and his administration should come to Congress and make their case and let the American people have their voices heard through their representatives. The Constitution says Congress is the one that decides whether or not to declare war. The second thing is his decision is actually undermining our national security and he's deploying more troops to the Middle East, not less. We are, we are seeing thousands more troops in the Middle East now than were there when he first took office. And secondly, their main mission in, in the Middle East, in Iraq in particular, has been to prevent a resurgence of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Well, because of his serious escalation and this act of war against Iran, we're seeing now all of our troops in Iraq, including those who he's deployed since, they're no longer focused on ISIS or Al-Qaeda. 
their focus completely now on this increased Iranian threat uh, coming from Iranian forces, Iranian-backed militias, leaving the door wide open for these terrorist groups, the very same ones like al-Qaeda who attacked us on 9-11, to start to reconstitute themselves, to get their strength back and to mount a resurgence which poses a threat to the American people, to our national security. Protecting U.S. troops and American lives is a top priority for you. One of the ways that the Obama administration tried to do that was through drone warfare, uh, vastly expanding its use. Under a President Gabbard, how does drone strike policy change, if at all? Uh, it changes in that it should be used very carefully and very precisely. Uh, it is a weapon of war, just like you have our, uh, our Air Force and our aircraft, they are armed with bombs to take out precision targets, threats to the American people and our national security and safety. I think the problem with this increased use of, of drone strikes, we've seen uh, an increased number of casual, civilian casualties. Uh, I think that this is something that must be treated very carefully as a weapon of war and only used where those precision strikes are necessary for our national security. One more on the military track here. What happens to the Space Force if you're the president? <laughs> Uh, look, I, I think that this is uh, not only an egregious waste of taxpayer dollars, but it's also even more seriously a dangerous escalation uh, in opening up this new battlefield in the world where uh, Instead of really seeing uh, warfare in this traditional sense uh, and trying to de-escalate tensions with other uh, nuclear-armed countries like Russia and China, with other countries who are potentially looking at space, um, he is he has taken action to actually escalate and rapidly speed the world closer to uh, having to wage warfare in space, which I don't think many people really seriously understand the vast implications of what that means. I think he's taken us in the wrong direction. Something you would undo, potentially? I would. Uh, you'd want to cut military spending as president. Anywhere else you see in the federal budget where you'd like to cut rather than gross spending? I think across the board, it, it, the outlook that we have towards federal spending needs to change. You know, I, I approach things from a very practical, kind of objective-oriented military mindset. What are we trying to accomplish? And is what we're doing working or not? And I, I've seen through, you know, whether it's the Department of um, Housing and Urban Development, through education, energy, agriculture, you look through these different departments, and I know that there are many programs that we should take another look at and say, is this working? If it's not, maybe we cancel it, or maybe we fix it and come up with something better. Just making sure that our taxpayer dollars are actually going towards helping meet the needs that the people have here in, in our communities across the country. I want to get your take as a progressive on something that's happening within the race. You don't have to play pundit too much here, but this is an interesting dynamic between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren right now, where one's claiming one said something and the other is saying that's not true. Essentially, Elizabeth Warren uh, accusing uh, Bernie of, you know, in this meeting of saying, she, uh, she said, quote, I thought a woman could win. He disagreed. Where do you come down on this? Do you think Bernie Sanders would really say something like that? Uh, look, I, I think this whole thing is, is very, very unfortunate and it takes away from the very real issues that, that people are, are waking up concerned about every day in survival for a lot of people. Uh, I, I can only speak from my personal experience. You know, I've known Bernie for a long time, spent a lot of time with him on the campaign trail in 2016 and and I met with him one-on-one -on -one to let him know that I was planning on running for president before I announced my candidacy and and as always you know he, he was very respectful and and uh, our friendship continues and, and he encouraged me uh, because he understood why why I'm doing this why I'm running for president right now 
sexism is a real problem in it politics. Is. Do you have a formula for dealing with it or approaching it? I mean, what's your approach when you face that, either on Capitol Hill or even on the campaign trail? Or in the military, for that matter. What do you do? Uh, you know, look, I, I let my actions speak louder than words and stay focused on my mission. You know, there, there's a lot of unfortunate name-calling, discrimination, and sexism that is very real and prevalent, not only in politics or in the military, but in the workplace every single day. And I think it's important to exercise the kind of leadership uh, to not only call it out, but to bring about the kind of change um, that we need to see where, you know, as we talk about equality for all in this country, that becomes a real thing when we talk about respect because that's really what it comes down to is are we treating each other with respect um, this is at the core of what needs to change and I think leadership the kind of leadership that really treats everyone with respect is what can spark that change we need to see we're looking at just days left essentially before the first in the nation vote of course the caucus gets to go first but uh, here we are in New Hampshire um, what does a victory look like for Tulsi Gabbard in the Granite State? Uh, look, I'm spending the next few weeks here in New Hampshire, leading all the way up to February 11th on Election Day, and continuing to go town by town, meeting with voters, holding town halls, getting out on Main Street and walking through, visiting small business owners, and uh, understanding how seriously New Hampshire voters are taking this election. So uh, I look forward to uh, being able to continue to share my message and the kind of unifying leadership that I seek to bring to them and know that they will make the best, uh, their best vote for the best interests of the country. So a good headline coming out of here and head to South Carolina, essentially? That would be great. Okay. Tulsi Gabbard, thanks Thank for joining you. us on Close Up. Good to see you. We'll see you out there Aloha. on the trail. Life's beautiful moments. Sunsets, landscapes, wildlife. That's WMUR's You Local Facebook group. Join this growing community and browse the stunning images captured by viewers like you. Or share your own. Get started at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash WMUR9. Go to groups and join you local. See you there. He's the longest tenured candidate in the 2020 primary, but he's running out of time to break through in this race. Former Congressman John Delaney is our guest this morning on Close Up. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So the impeachment trial is underway in Washington, yeah. and we know that there are four senators, four of your competitors, who are essentially stuck there uh, for perhaps up to a couple of weeks uh, dealing with this situation. From the political standpoint, do you think this gives you a little bit of an opening, being on the ground in Iowa and New Hampshire, to try and get your foot in the door? Well, Adam, I don't really look at it that way, because I think the work they're doing is obviously incredibly important and I think people will see them doing that work and you know they'll have an opportunity to talk about their campaign and I'm sure they'll get up here so I don't really think that matters I think what really matters is my message to voters and the fact that I'm out there campaigning as hard as possible the position of your campaign right now you've been at this for pretty much three years uh, how much of your situation right now is on you and how much do you think it has to do with the DNC rules uh, that have so greatly shaped this race? Well, I think what the DNC did is they nationalized the race very early and they took away the role of New Hampshire and Iowa in, in some respects by effectively creating what I like to call the social media primary before the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary. And I think that was unfortunate and I think the democracy loses because the voters here in New Hampshire, just like they are in Iowa, are very skilled at figuring out candidates. Not just what their ideas are, but what kind of person they, they are. Why are they doing this? Because in many ways that's the most important question. Why, why do you want to be the President of the United States? And, you know, you can figure that out when you meet people in their living rooms, in their coffee shop. And this race got way too nationalized too soon. But I get the sense New Hampshire and even Iowa, they're trying to take it back. 
and get back to that personal level of campaigning. Back to impeachment and parallel to that situation, the Government Accountability Office is now saying that the Trump administration broke the law yeah. when it withheld aid from Ukraine. From a wider lens here, you can see this in the pattern of growing executive power over the last decades of the 20th century and up until now. If you are president, are you going to accept any restrictions on executive power that perhaps gets things back to a constitutional norm? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think I wasn't surprised by the GO's report today because I, I thought the president broke the law when the story first broke. But one of the problems in our country at this moment in time, and it's been happening over the last, say, two decades, is Congress is broken. And as a result, the courts and the president, in many ways, have become too powerful. You know, if you think about all the major decisions that are affecting our lives, they're being made by the President of the United States through executive authority, and that's been a bipartisan problem, right? Democrats and Republicans have done it. And the courts, right? Because the courts are really deciding policy in this country because people are fighting out all their policy differences in the courts. And that's because Congress is broken and it's not passing laws and it's not addressing the issues we have. So one of the things I'm committed to as president is actually working with Congress and getting Congress working again because it's that representative democracy that's supposed to drive a lot of the policy making in this country with the president really being the person who sets the tone at the top, obviously implements the law, but actually acts as a model for the country and appealing to the better angels in all of us. And you were hoping to get a lot passed because as a former congressman, uh, you've been there. One of your plans is the National Service Plan. Yes. And within that is a climate core. Very interested in this, mm -hmm, sure. essentially trying to get young people involved in doing things that will help uh, change the course of climate change yes. right now. But how do they do that? Usually this is that's sometimes skilled labor in terms of you mm -hmm. talk about green energy and things like that. How do you get people just coming out of high school to do something about climate change? So first of all, I think everyone who graduates from high school should, should serve their country. We should create an opportunity for them to do that. And it could either be the military, it could be part of an infrastructure program, it could be doing community service, or it could be part of this climate corps, which was my new idea on, on national service. And they'd get stationed all over the country. They'd get mixed with kids from all different communities. They'd realize they have a lot in common. And there would be a skills building component with it. And in the Climate Corps, for example, I think what they could do is work on energy efficient infrastructure in local communities. They could help our seniors retrofit their homes for energy efficiency. You know, a lot of us have already done that in our homes, but a lot of people haven't. And I just think it would be extraordinary to have young people engaged in service period and the Climate Corps being one aspect of it. And the reason I think it's important is so many young people want to do something to make a difference in our sustainability. And I think the Climate Corps is a perfect way for them to do that. But I think national service in many ways, Adam, is the most important thing we need in this country because we need to reassert this notion that everyone has responsibility to their country and to their fellow Americans. And the best way to do that is with national service. Uh, when it comes to climate change and the consequences of climate change, everybody wants to live next to the water, right? And it's usually at the state or the local level where we decide right. who gets to live where and how close to the ocean and these kinds of things that, that happens. But the consequences often, if there's a disaster, end up with FEMA and national taxpayers end up footing the bill. Do you see any changes coming in that regard in terms of trying to perhaps discourage rebuilding in vulnerable areas? Yeah, I, I think, listen, if someone is in a vulnerable area and a devastating storm you know wipes out their house or has extensive damage 
if, if it wipes out their house like Superstorm Sandy did, obviously I believe we need to step forward and make sure they're compensated for the loss. But that doesn't mean we have to create an incentive for them to go right back in the same place and potentially have that same event happen to them again in 10, 20 years and have the taxpayers have to foot the bill again. So I think as part of these programs, you obviously have to take care of people if they have a loss, but then I think you can create incentives for them to start you know, living in places that don't have as much risk. Or if they decide to live in a place that has a lot of risk, to some extent, that's got to be their risk. Mm. On immigration, on, in a Delaney administration, what will change at these migrant detention centers? Well, first of all, I'll push to pass a law that we cannot separate children from their parents, period. No exceptions, no matter how someone wants to work around it. I don't think as a country that's a reflection of who we are as a people, that we let a child be separated from their parents. So that's one thing that'll change. The second thing is I'll work to pass comprehensive immigration reform, which will deal with so many of our immigration issues, including issues at the border. You know, my wife April and I, we went to one of these facilities a year ago. We took 14 law students and two law professors on a trip that we sponsored to actually go to the largest detention facility in the United States of America, which is in Dilly, Texas. And we helped for a week asylum seekers make their case. So I saw what was happening uh, at these facilities, and I think there's a lot we need to do. Immigration and health care, a very sensitive issue mm -hmm. here. And your background is in health care, so you know a lot of the uncompensated care yes. that comes through the door can be from people who are undocumented mm -hmm. and not plugged into the system. Uh, obviously, as I mentioned, controversial the idea of paying in some way for health care for undocumented folks. But what is the solution? Because those costs land yes. to the consumer one way or the other. We have a law in this country that says if you go to the emergency room, you have to get taken care of. And I support that law, and it applies, obviously, to any human being in our country. And that makes sense. But what I also think we need to do is create a universal health care system for American citizens. So that's my vision of health care. Universal health care, where all of our citizens get health care as a basic human right. They have the ability to opt out. They don't have to just take the government plan like some people are pushing for. That's a terrible idea. But then also we have that, that ultimate safety net protection in emergency rooms. But by getting every American citizen universal health care, it'll get a lot of people out of the emergency rooms into primary care, into preventative care, and those kind of things. A lot of undecided voters out there. What is the pitch from John Delaney right now to people who, and there are a lot of them out there, just now tuning into the race? So the pitch is, first of all, why am I doing it? This is not about me. When my wife and I decided to enter public service, that was the thing we said to ourselves. We can make a difference. This is not about us. You know, I grew up in a blue-collar family. I'm the first in my family to go to college. I was a successful entrepreneur, created thousands of jobs, and then I served in the Congress of the United States. That's a very different background, and it gives me a very different perspective, not only about what public service is, which is not my career, it's, it's my way of trying to make a difference in the world, and that's what I'll bring to the job as presidency. It's not about me, it's about the people. But also, I'm a doer. I'm a problem solver. You wouldn't start two businesses from scratch, take them public on the New York Stock Exchange, then roll up your sleeves and run for Congress and become the third most bipartisan member of Congress if you weren't a problem solver. And that's what our country needs. It's kind of what I said earlier. Congress is broken. It doesn't do anything. 
And our country's paying a huge price. We need a president that actually wants to unify this nation, restore a sense of common purpose to who we are as a people, and actually start solving problems, whether it's health care, immigration, improving public schools, making sure young people have jobs in every community, doing things to lift wages, making sure that all this technological innovation, which is extraordinarily positive, also plays out positively for our workers. These are the kind of things I want to do as president. I'm a problem solver, and I'll bring this country together. All right, John Delaney, thanks for joining us on Adam, Close Up. thank you. We'll see you out there on the trail. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.